This is Educational Segregation in Spain, Episode 2, Gathering Signatures and Finding Support. Welcome to our second episode of School Segregation in Spain. Do you remember last episode? We traveled all the way to the Basque Country to introduce the ILP project, an initiative started by Subiac Eraikis. Remember Subiac Eraikis? It meant building bridges. And this initiative in the Basque Country was to bring an attention and to remediate school segregation in the Basque school system. We met Sabina Gonzalo, who ignited this conversation. We also learned about the history of education in Spain and its dual system based on public schools and concertadas. Remember concertadas? Were those schools that were like private and public partnerships that started uh, with the emergence of the democratic government in Spain after Franco's, the dictator regime? We also learned about an increased immigration uh, that have been experienced in Spain, particularly since the 2000s, with huge uh, amounts of immigrants coming from Latin America, uh, North Africa, and the Middle East. So what happened with this initiative? Did it stay only in a conversation between Sabina and Gonzalo or another members of Subiac Eraikis? What did they did afterwards? So to help us out to understand what happened after this in the story? Here is again our friend Sabine. We we started to with contact with different uh, actors of the educational system, specifically the association of the. Um, how do you say the uh, AMPAS? Ampas the organization. Um, the, yeah, uh, the parent teacher associations. Parent. Parent teacher association. Ah, in in Spain, in the Basque country, it's not with teachers. Eh? It's only parents. Okay. It's only parents. So uh, the parent association of the school. The parent associations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the first contact started with um, uh, with the federation of uh, parents association. Of the, of the public uh, public schools, hmm. Eile is called. That is, and um, and with another organization that was the the um, uh, association of the directors of uh, public schools. So we we spoke uh, with uh, both associations and and they they considered it was interesting to promote a debate, not just. Not just a debate, but a debate in the institution, no? Uh, and there is a um, in the in the in our plat uh, platform we were considering the um, the instrument of the of uh, initi um, social legislative initiative. That is the is the um, uh, there is an institutional opportunity to collect signatures and to promote a debate. In the parliament, so you wanted you wanted to take the issue to the to the Basque Parliament, yeah. And for yeah. that, you need to gather signatures. Yeah, yeah. In the case of the Basque Parliament, is uh, about uh, ten thousand uh, signatures. Yeah. And in the association, we were considering this instrument 
this legislative instrument, and we consider that uh, it was uh, a good instrument to promote a social debate about uh, school segregation. Um, to concrete uh, a few uh, concrete um, legislative um, articles about the uh, about the against the school segregation and to collect signatures to to promote a debate, not just not just a, a debate in uh, I mean I mean in the in the association, but in a debate in the parliament, no, in the parliament and. And involves uh, different social, social and political and, and unions and different actors. So, according to the Basque legislation, civil groups or organizations can present an issue to the Basque Parliament. To do so, they need to gather 10,000 signatures. When these signatures are collected, the issue can be presented to the parliament. After hearing the initiative, the Basque parliament votes and decides whether the issue will be taken up as a parliament debate and an issue to address. An interesting fact of this political process is that if the Basque parliament agrees to take up the issue, the organization or group who brought the concern is reimbursed by the Basque state the entire cost of the social campaign. But they need to gather 10,000 signatures. To gather 10,000 signatures, the ILP needed to gather support from major organizations related to education. And to gather support from organizations, they need to have data and facts about school segregation in the Basque countries. In other words, they need to have evidence to go and tell people, hey, this is a problem. Look at how big is this problem. So they brought Pablo to the team. Hello, uh, my name is Pablo Rey Mazón, and I participate, I coordinate projects in Montera 34. Um, and I participated in this ILP project uh, about uh, school segregation in the Basque Country, developing all the visualizations and data analysis. Pablo worked in this nonprofit called Montera, dedicated to government transparency and open data initiatives. Uh, he knew Sabine from other social initiatives that have worked together in the past. The job, this job of the ILP, resonated with him because he has two kids in public schools and he's been always concerned about uh, equity issues in, in public schools. Pablo is also the president of the Parent Association of the school his children attend. Full disclosure, my five and seven-year-old goes to that school, and that's the reason I, I know Pablo. But let's listen to Pablo so he can tell us a little bit about the report. We, we went from... Uh from a European perspective to Spanish and to the Basque country perspective, just to, you know, to give some uh, overview and to give context to the situation in, in the Basque country. And the thing is, I didn't have to make the research for the data that came from the, that, that sometimes in most of the projects is part of the, most of the project is to 
start searching or researching where are the data. In this case, it was Sabine or maybe the other team, but they want the person who I was interacting with, with Sabine, uh, provided the data, so I had to, to think in ways of representing them. The more general ones, like for this Spain and for Europe, uh, or simple bar charts, we, we made them better, or, or we, we thought they were, were better than the ones that existed. But when we went to in detail to the data of uh, for the Basque country, we could start uh, making new kind of stuff, new kind of, uh, of graphics to show the how the the sculpture the the, the the separation between the private or semi-private or public school was made. And there we could uh, make some some more different visualizations and try to explore more. And, and with that, we, we came to this. Well, what I, I think it was like the more interesting uh, visualization was to compare uh, scholarships no? when you. Uh, well, because we didn't have measures of the people, um, migrants or people from different, for the, from a socio-cultural or economic perspective of this data, uh, what we used it was a proxy of the people uh, with a scholarship uh, for school material for the I call the comedor the yeah the food yeah for. Uh, well, they, they, they go to they, they to have lunch in the school. Some people have scholarships for that. And then uh, also we have the another proxy of the uh, uh, foreigners. Yeah. All of them we knew it was just a proxy. It was not the real data we wanted. We would like, we would have, would like uh, better to have uh, real data with the socioeconomic structure of the, the people, but we didn't, so we used this, this proxy. And we had the data for the public schools and for the private and, and semi-private, what we call here the concertados. No? So Pablo used existing data from reports, but created better visuals that can tell a better story. In other words, he was using the same story elements out there in reports to create a better narrative for the reader. He had to use some proxies as some data was not available. He used, for example, what we call here in the US, a student receiving free and reduced lunch as proxy for socioeconomic status. And data on non-Spanish citizens or foreigners as proxy for immigration status. This latter one can encompass, this latter group can encompass a vast diversity of experience, right? It could be foreigners, could be someone who came from Germany, France, or Italy or Poland to work here in Spain, it could be people from South America, it could be people from Northern Africa or the Middle East that came here to find a, a better life and a better economic opportunity. So we should be careful when we interpret those results. So what did the report actually include? The report show a number of easy to digest visuals describing the extent of school segregation in the Basque country and the difference between concertadas, those public and private partnerships and public schools and the difference between them in serving low-income and immigrant students. Here are some highlights of the report described by Pablo. In this case, it was a, it was a confirmation of uh, seeing that uh, private or semi-private schools uh, had less uh, 
Uh, less people with scholarships and less people that are foreigners. So it was like kind of confirming what we were expecting. But as uh, when anyone working with data, you, you want more. Mm -hmm. So you have this first research and you say, well, maybe it's a problem of how this, uh, these areas, these zones have been designed or maybe there's more difference among the different, you know, that in, in the private or semi-private schools, yeah. here, there are different networks, you know, the, the, the Christian ones, the yeah. Castolas, they're more related to the, to the Basque uh, language and yeah. the Basque nationali nationalism. So maybe maybe there's, there's more, but we don't have uh, good enough data to, to do that. Um, yeah, because the data on so concertadas you have grouped, um, uh, it grouped uh, Icastolas with uh, traditional Catholic concertadas, right? Yes, yeah, that's it. Okay. And, and we know there are differences, and we and, and we know that uh, some people talk about the specific uh, cases, like for example in the in the in the neighborhood of Deusto in Bilbao, and there are two public schools, uh, one that and, and and they they are both public. They are I don't know how many meters apart, but one uh, has much more uh, migrants than the other. And and the, this other that has less migrants is more Abertzale, more Basque oriented, or I don't know how to say that in English. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's because it comes from a former Icastola, because the Castola were those uh, concerts that the semi-private schools uh, were promoting the Basque language. Mm -hmm. And some of them, I think in the 80s, were, it's called purified, like they, they, they converted from private to public. Yeah. But uh, they, they, there is like this tradition or this cultural thing of a place, even if both are public, they have different people or different kind of uh, teachers and whatever, even if both are in the same system and both are public. So let me expand on Pablo's description of the results of the report. By the way, you should find a link of the report and other interesting links about the case in the page of this podcast. So check it out. It's pretty cool. So the report shows that the Basque country has the largest percentage of students attending to Escuelas Concertadas, these public-private public partnerships, uh, but not just in Spain. Actually, in the entire Europe, only second to Belgium, almost 50% of all students from early childhood to high school attend to a Concertada. To give you some comparison, in the US, only 7% of students attend to a charter school, which are similar to concertadas, according to the National Center of Educational Statistics with data from 2018. So let me tell you again, in the past country, 50% of students attend to these private-public partnerships of all the public network. In the US, only 7%. Another interesting fact is that around 10% of students in the public network are immigrant students. Uh, to give you a comparison, in the US, that percentage is 23%. 23% of all public school students in the US come from an immigrant household. In the Basque country, only 10%. So 10% attends to the public network, but in the Concertadas network, only 5%. And if we look just at Icastolas, 
those type of schools with that are considered concertadas, but they're they're not Catholic. They're just focused on promoting and teaching the Basque language. It's only 2.5%. So the public neighbor almost double the total of the percentage of immigrant students from if you compare it to concertadas and like almost quadruple if you compare it with Icastolas, those that promote the Basque language. And I will expand again, I will expand a little more on Icastolas just in a little bit, just hold for a minute. Um, so, but remember this, right? Remember this about immigrant students, when we talk about immigrant students in this report, is that it's a very vast and diverse and eclectic group. As I say, it could be people from uh, uh, wealthy parts of Europe, like uh, uh, Germany, uh, um, France, uh, it could be also people from South America, coming from South America, people from uh, Northern Africa, it could be people from uh, the Middle East, uh, immigrant families that come to, to, to the Basque country. So that, that needs to be taken into account when we think about that. Then we need to look at issues of low-income students, that as Pablo says, they were using the proxy of students who receive free lunch services. Those students account for 39% in the concertadas, but 61% in the public network. So again, a significant difference, which may indicate some issues of uh, school segregation. The report goes into more details about those different, how those differences played out in the different school zones or school districts in the Basque country. And yes, there are some nuances and differences across school zones, but the general pattern still holds. Public school enrolls higher proportions of immigrants and low-income students than those concertadas, those private public partnerships. But it could signal some potential causes for school segregation. But as we will learn in the next episode, this explanation is not as simple, simple as clear-cut as one may think. But for now, let's just stay with this info. The ILP initiative reported and emphasized the differences in students who are immigrant or low income between the different networks. And this is what we use, what they, would, they use to uh, begin to gain support from different political parties and from uh, the general uh, audience and population in, in the Basque country. So I think this is a good time to contextualize school segregation in the Basque country with the rest of Spain and other countries in the world to have some sort of barometer to, 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 compare, to compare. And to do that, I'm going to ask to someone to help us out. Hello, I'm Lucas Bortazar. Um, I work as a, a director of education at the think tank Sade Ekpol. And I also work as an education consultant at the World Bank, where I've been working for the last 10 years in more than 10, 20 countries. I am a mathematic, mathematician and economist trained at the Basque Country University in Bilbao. I met Lucas through Gonzalo and Sabine. Uh, Lucas was one of those experts that was called up on uh, by Gonzalo and Sabine when they were creating these seminars to educate people in the Basque country about school segregation. Lucas works, lives in Madrid, but he's originally from the Basque country. He's actually originally from, from Bilbao. 
As he mentioned, he worked for the World Bank and he has conducted several reports on school segregation with a global perspective, looking at different countries and how they are uh, doing in that regard. So I asked him to talk about the extent of segregation, school segregation in Spain and how it compares to, to other places. Can you tell me a little bit about the extent of uh, school segregation in Spain? Is, is that is that something of concern? Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about how much it is? Yeah, so I guess we need to be give a bit of context before we move on into into diagnosis. We need some definition, some basic common understanding and common ground. So. Um, uh, I would say there are there are there's two layers here. First is level of education, primary, secondary, and also second is uh, the type of segregation we're talking about. No, when it comes to socioeconomic segregation, uh, it's a bit different than when it comes to um, migrant origin or ethnic segregation. Um, there's not much analysis regarding racial segregation in Spain for for uh, for reasons you can understand. But on the other two, uh, what we can say is that uh, segregation is higher in primary compared to secondary, uh, and is is high relative to other countries, and its average uh, in secondary is high in primary. And then when it comes to the type of segregation, segregation is higher uh, in socioeconomic terms than in uh, when it comes to immigrant origin. Um, but uh, uh, immigration is better included at schools, immigrant population or population from immigrant origin, uh, like second second generation immigrants uh, born in Spain and Spanish citizens, are more included in Spanish schools with, with native origin students relative to other countries. So that would be the picture. And then there's this regional variation, which of course for the case of Spain is so important because we have a highly decentralized education system. So uh, regional variation is also is also relevant. There are regions where, where school segregation by socioeconomic status is pretty low compared to countries in Northern Europe. Uh, and where it's pretty, pretty high, like Madrid, for example, where, where it, you know, it can be compared when it comes to socioeconomic status of segregation to countries in Latin America or, or Eastern Europe. Similar, similarly, uh, when it comes to um, segregation by immigrant origin, for example, the Basque country has a high segregation by immigrant origin, whereas other regions, and I can't remember now two or three examples, but they have a low segregation by immigrant origin. So there, there is variation across regions. Would you, could you compare segregation, uh, the extent of segregation, school segregation in Spain with the U.S.? Do you have any barometer that could see it's it's more severe, less severe? Yeah, it's it's so complex when it comes to you know mixing different indicators in different regions and taking the whole country as a unit of measurement. I think with PISA, uh, uh, the U.S. has a smaller segregation uh, in terms of socioeconomic status compared to Spain. Uh, I would need to check in terms of immigrant origin but you know when it comes to looking within the u.s you know you have states which have super high segregation and that segregation of course is a phenomenon tightly related to the 
to the racial issue in the U.S. So mm-hmm. we don't measure racial segregation in Spain, uh, but of course, racial segregation in the U.S. is, is probably the, 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 at the heart of the discussion. So Lucas told us that school segregation in Spain exists and it's a problem, and that is higher in the primary grades and in terms of socioeconomic status. Actually, if we look at just primary grades in terms of socioeconomic status, school segregation in Spain is one of the highest in all Europe, only behind Lithuania and Turkey, and even comparable to some South American countries with very high levels of school segregation due to class, socioeconomic status. In terms of immigration, in terms of school segregation in relation to immigration, actually, Spain, it's either similar to the mean of other European countries in the elementary level and even lower in the secondary level. But there is one exception in terms of immigration in Spain, and that is the Basque country, which is interesting because we were talking that there were very low percentage of immigrants in the Basque country, even compared to the U.S. Uh, so begin to wonder if these language models had something to do with this. I remember those three models of instruction of the Basque country I, that we discussed before. They have the model A, which was just instruction in Spanish, the model B, which is a mixture between Spanish and, and Basque, and model D, which was uh, only Basque language. So I wonder if this has anything to do, but I will leave this question pending for the next episodes, though we'll talk about Icastolas in a few minutes, which may shed some light on this issue. But bottom line, school segregation in the Basque country is a fact. Um, The ILP was into something, into something concrete. And they began to gather signatures. They began to collect support. Gonzalo tell us the ways that they collected signatures. La verdad es que nosotros esperamos haber recibido muchísimas más, más firmas, ¿eh? ¿eh? Pero se ve que, bueno, se ve que, eh, no sé, eh, incluso vamos a poner algún anuncio en la radio y tal. Sí, pero no, no llegó al número que igual. Gonzalo Sabin told me that the signature collection lasted for about three to four months. They had booths in fairs, in major street intersections. They moved through parental and teacher organizations to also get signatures. They were also able to collect signatures online. And this was the first time an ILP, a legislative initiative, collected signatures online in the history of the Basque Country. Gonzalo told me they even had uh, uh, ads in major radio stations. And they were featuring numerous newspapers in the Basque Country with headlines like Euskadi moves to stop school segregation. By the way, Euskadi, it's the Basque word for the Basque Country. Or other titles like presenting legislative initiative to end school segregation in Cadena Ser, one of the major radio and media outlets in Spain. But still, some organizations and political parties were not fond of the initiative for different reasons. Sabine explains this. In the in the case of LAP, they they explain it uh, two main uh, two main explanations. What was that uh, in the in our text? 
it were, were considering that uh, the, there was the public, the public schools mm-hmm. and the and the uh, schools uh, concertate, so that are private schools that, that uh, receive uh, public funding. And they consider that it was not uh, a good analyze because they consider that in the private uh, it's necessary to differentiate the, all the private that receive funding and specifically some of them that is, are called Castolas, mm-hmm. Castolas, that was a movement in favor of the uh, Basque language uh, years ago. And they considered that uh, we can know, uh, we cannot uh, uh, to put all of them in the same group, no? And basically, basically in the, in the Basque country, the, the half of the system is private with public funding, that is uh, concertadas, we call it in, here in, yeah, in our educational system. And most of them are religious, most of them, like, uh, yeah, could be more than, more than the, the half of the privates are religious. And the other, some of them are not religious, but are pre- private uh, cooperatives or... Uh, parents or different initiatives, and some of them are this movement that uh, the um, uh, that the, um, they form is a cooperative, is a school cooperative, and they are in the movement of, uh, in favor of the Basque language. But we have to consider that the Basque language is uh, is taught uh, uh, too in the in the public system. Eh? But that was one of the reasons that because they they didn't. Um, uh, uh, they they told us that uh, they were not in the, uh, and the and the other the other um, reason was that in in our uh, proposal there was not the defense of a unique uh, linguistic model for all the uh, the educational system of the Basque country hmm. with all the subjects in Basque only Basque. And nowadays in the Basque system there are different uh, linguistical options. You can study all in Basque uh, with with uh, Spanish like uh, subject, yes, uh, language Spanish. You can study only, only in Spanish with the Basque subject, yes, uh, yes to the language. And after there is a system that is uh, half, half and a half. And they consider that because in our initiative it was not only in favor of the only only in Basque system, and these were the two main reasons to not support the 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 initiative. Yeah. The two major teacher unions did not support the initiative or the gathering of signatures due to language politics. They didn't support it because first, the initiative was grouping Icastolas and Catholic schools together under the label of concertadas. And the initiative was emphasizing the role of these concertadas in segregating schools. And second, the teacher unions did not support the initiatives because the initiative was not proposing as a solution having all schools to teach 100% in Basque, in Euskera. 
The rationale for that is that if you have all classrooms teaching in Euskera, you don't have other tracks where segregation could happen. For example, those other two models that I mentioned earlier, the Model A, which is just in Spanish, which there are a lot of immigrant students, and uh, particular for South America, and Model uh, B, which is a mix between Spanish and uh, Basque. So why did the teacher unions were so protective of Icastolas? Why they didn't want to group them with Catholic schools and kind of blame them a little bit about for school segregation? So here's when we need to stop for a minute and understand the history of Icastolas and language politics in the Basque country. I think I mentioned before that we will get to this point. This is, this is the time where we do it. So during Franco's years, the Basque language was outcast from public institutions and schools. Franco, after all, was a nationalist dictator. They wanted to unify Spain within the same language. They didn't want like split cultures around the country, which of course this was intention with the Basque unique culture and desires for autonomy. The schools were instructed fully in Spanish during Franco, and they didn't let uh, schools or people to teach uh, Euskera. Icastolas were born, were raised as small pockets of resistance at that moment. There were small local initiatives created by local communities, uh, creating their own school to instruct in Euskera to be able to conserve the language. Uh, this was a very underground, in many cases, operation. But when democracy came about and the Basque country took the, the reins of its own education system, Icastolas were brought into the public umbrella. They were the model to follow, but they remain as private institutions that offer free education, a concertada. But this is very interesting because also due to the abolishment of the Basque language Euskera during the Pulinarin in Franco's year, some generations of Basque do not speak the language at all because they grew through during uh, Franco's years. So think about this. The Basque Euskera is the predominant language of instruction, but it's still the minority language in the everyday practice. So language politics here are very important because they're trying to push Euskera to become again the main language in uh, in Euskadi, in, in the past land. And this is very interesting because many parents who send their children to uh, be instructed fully in Euskera, themselves, the parents, do not speak Euskera. So I, my daughter, for example, goes to a classroom that teaches fully in Euskera. I, I of course, I don't, I don't speak Euskera. It's actually a pretty hard language to, to learn. And there's a lot of parents there, some who are not from the Basque country, but some who are who did not speak Euskera either. So this is kind of the background of the, the, the language politics and why there's so much protection for the Basque language and for Icastolas. But here there is another interesting issue about Icastolas that Gonzalo told us about. Entonces, el índice socioeconómico de de quienes escogen centros, las icastolas como centros para sus hijos, pues normalmente son esa gente que está a favor de la, de la cultura vasca y que cree que es una garantía de aprendizaje de euskera. Bueno, luego ya todo esto es muy discutible, de llevarle a, un colegio, a una icastola, 
y, y por lo contrario un inmigrante meterse a un centro donde todos solo se habla en euskera, etcétera pues dice, no, no, nosotros vamos a la escuela claro. pública, que encima no tenemos que ser socios cooperativistas, porque ahora ya las ICAS todas se han convertido en cooperativas. Gonzalo y told me no that most ICAS have become cooperatives, which though they do not charge tuition because they are supposed to be public, they are subsidized by the government, parents still need to pay their dues for being members of the cooperative. Most of the students enrolling in Castolas now come from upper middle class vast uh, families. In a sense, Icastolas has become the school for the bourgeoisie of the Basque country, of families of middle class and upper middle class families that have a strong emphasis on conserving Euskera. Though still the public schools, there is a modelo there that the kids can teach Euskera, but some families prefer the Icastola. And therefore, they have a minimal enrollment of students from low socioeconomic or immigrant status. Remember that report from Pablo? It showed that while immigrant students compose 9% of the total school enrollment in the traditional public schools, they only compose 2.4% in Castolas. Even Catholic concertadas serve a larger share of immigrant students and students from low socioeconomic status, but about 6%. So, Castolas may be contributing to this issue of school segregation, even though they have been born, or they've been created as a way to resist and sustain uh, an injustice, which was the prohibition of the Basque language. So here we have an interesting issue, right? We have uh, a just an emancipatory initiative like the Castolas, that in the time of Franco came as a way of resistance to sustain and contribute to preserve the Basque language and Basque culture against the dictatorship. Over time, they have become in schools for the bourgeoisie and contributing to school segregation. Now, we got to go back to our story now. Uh, and we need to figure it out if at all this end of signature collection, the ILP was able to collect 10,000 signatures or not. At the end of the signature collection, the LP was not able to collect 10,000 signatures. They collected 17,000 signatures. And even better, some political parties pledged their support to them. Here again, Sabine, tell us a little bit about it. We received, the, at the beginning, the support of uh, three political parties. Uh, uh, Bildu, that is the left nationalist uh, independentist political party, and the Basque Parliament, Socialist Party, that is, uh, is, the, is the party that uh, at the moment is governing in the, in the central government of Spain, Socialist Party, <clears throat> and El Carguín Podemos, that is the, the party who is... Uh, with uh, in coalition with the Socialist Party in the state, but well, it was the federations of the Basque Country, the Socialist uh, Party of the Basque Country, and El Carguín Podemos, that uh, is Unidas Podemos of the Basque Country, with Bildu. At the beginning, the, the three, these three left parties uh, the supported the, the campaign. So the initiative was able to collect 17,000 signatures. 
which by the way, Gonzalo was actually disappointed. He thought it will they will get many more signatures, like 50,000, he told me. But he thought because they were not backed up, uh, supported by some of these major national teacher unions, uh, they uh, they they didn't get to, to, to that goal. But anyway, they got to 17,000, more than 15. They were able to uh, move on and, and present to the Basque Parliament. And they were... Uh, they received the support of three major political parties that Sabine mentioned, and, and I'm going to review them to you so you, you understand the politics better. One was the PSOE, which was the Socialist Party. It's a center-left party, but it's a nationalist party who is currently in power in Spain. It's the ones who have the, the presidency. Uh, Podemos, which is another left party, uh, that it's also co-governing with the PSOE, the Socialist Party, but it's a little more leaning to the left and also is represented in the Basque Parliament. And Bildu. Bildu is also a left party, but it's only in the uh, Basque region. Uh, and it's a nationalist party. That means that push from much more uh, or stronger autonomy in, in, in the Basque country. So those three who didn't support them were two other major major parties. The PNV, which is the Nationalist Basque Party. And though this is a center-right party who has been in power in Euskadi, so the, the president of the autonomous region of the Basque Country is from the PNV, and they've been in power since the, uh, the beginning of the democracy and since Euskadi was able to self-govern itself after Franco. So they've been in power for a long time. Um, and the other party was the Pepe, which is the national, I mean, Spain, uh, uh, center-right party. That also, in, at some points in Spain, has been uh, in power uh, governing uh, the country. So those three parties, again, PSOE, the um, Socialist Party, Podemos, and Bildu, were, were supporting them, at least for now. And things were looking pretty good. Just think about this. They were able, again, to collect the signatures and find the support of three major parties. And even Gonzalo told us that these parties sent representatives when they were holding press conferences and they would be standing behind them supporting uh, when they were uh, talking to the press. So things were looking good. Things were looking good for the initiative, at least for now. Next episode, we continue to follow the ILP to see if they succeed when they present in the parliament. Uh, also, we delve into the solutions they propose to eliminate school segregation in the Basque Country. We also will compare those to what the experts say on school segregation in Spain and what other autonomies have tried out to mitigate school segregation in, in, in Spain. All that and much more in our next episode of School Segregation in Spain.
This resource was brought to you by the Midwestern Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwestern Plains Equity Assistance Center resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to our publications, click on the subscribe to our publications link located on the Midwestern Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center, is funded by the United States Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout our 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This product and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank the Indiana University School of Education Indianapolis at IEPY, as well as Executive Director Dr. Kathy Kintorius, Director of Operations Dr. Sina Skelton, and Associate Director Dr. Tiffany Kaiser for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.